Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. I'm Isaac. Today we are joined by friend of the pod, Kelsey McKinney. Kelsey, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Hi, I'm Kelsey McKinney. I'm the co-founder. I'm one of the co-founders of Defector.com. And I have a novel coming out in June called God Spare the Girls. And we perhaps, obviously, we're not recording this in June, although we are dropping it in June. So it will be coming out in about two days from when this episode airs. Oh, wow. That's not stressful at all. I feel great about that. (laughs) So so everyone can go out to your local bookstore in approximately two days and buy God Spare the Girls and support Kelsey. Please. (laughs) But so you work at Defector right now and uh, there's a interesting story to how Defector like came to be that I know Brian wanted to get into. <laughs> um, I know we're going to lead with this, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, a, I loved Deadspin. So Deadspin was kind of like the place where we could, uh, uh, I could f- find people that wanted to shit on Bill Simmons with me that would uh, have like good takes. Is that too much already? <laughs> too, too hot in the, to start the pod. But anyway, I, um, yeah. And so, and then all of a sudden, I think it was like, what, October of 2019? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you started seeing all of these tweets about how Deadspin was, was starting to go. And then all of a sudden, there was this rash of, uh, of staff uh, and writers who just were like, we're out. Um, and I just thought it was one of this one of this kind of like wonderful moments. And I'm probably I'm probably you can you can fill in the details from my, you know, what I saw on, on the internet versus what actually happened. But it was one of those wonderful moments of like a site that was kind of taking a stand and walking the walk that they had been talking for how ever since they had been a part of it. Uh, and so when I, I didn't realize that you were actually a part of Deadspin and then Defector until uh, CJ and I were talking about the book and then it kind of all came together. So I just thought it was one of those things that we talk a lot about this stuff, about stuff like this on the pod. And it was just one of those moments where it's just like, oh, this is what like actual integrity looks like. <laughs> and you, you don't see that very often, especially when you're in the writing, like in writing circles where those jobs are super rare and, and coveted. And you had an entire editorial staff willing to kind of basically put their professional lives on the line, it seemed, f- to do what was right and to kind of basically support one another. So I, I don't know that I have a question in any of that, but I, I, I just thought it was one of those moments in the internet where it's like, oh, I'm glad I'm on Twitter today, which <laughs> does not happen very often for me to say that. So Thank you so much. Yeah, I was... I was kind of the last one on the sinking ship at Deadspin. They they hired me like in June, I think, May or June. I started uh, to do features for them. So I was still new and a bunch of the readers didn't know me at all. And so in a lot of those meetings about like, what should we do? I was like, I'll just do whatever the team wants to do. Like, I agree with all the morals that we're saying here. So yeah, whatever you guys want to do. And so when it turned out that what we wanted to do is kind of stick it to our bosses and quit, that is what we did. And something we've talked a lot about since is kind of how unanimous that decision was and how quick it was. It wasn't easy for a lot of people on our staff, right? Like it's easier for me. I I don't have kids. I don't have like major, major health problems. Um, but a lot of people on our staff did. And so for them, that was a really big life decision. And it was like, they made it in like 12 hours. And seeing that in process is just really stunning to see someone kind of st- back up and stand behind what they believe over a paycheck and security. And I mean, would we do it again, knowing that there was going to be a massive pandemic six months <laughs> later? Who knows? But in 2019, it was a great decision. Well, see, can you give folks who may not know what Deadspin was uh, just some background on all this? Yeah, absolutely. So Deadspin was a vertical of what was originally Gawker Media. Um, And then that company was 
purchased and transformed by several other major media conglomerates, including uh, Fusion Media at one point. And then when I worked there by a VC firm called Great Hill Partners. Um, Deadspin was kind of irreverent. Um, It was founded on the principle that like, we will say what we believe, whether or not that is nice. Right. And it was founded as kind of a counter to the major sports publications like ESPN that do a lot of um, what we would call brown nosing with the major <laughs> leagues. And we didn't want to do that. Right. We wanted to say, like, if people are being shitheads, we want to call them on that. And we want to put it on our site and we want to tell our readers what's happening. And there aren't a lot of sports publications that can do that because they depend on access. Right. They're like, if, if you want to interview Simone Biles, you can't say that USA Gymnastics is like a terrorist organization. Right. But we can. Because we can say like, this is all the, these are all the terrible things that they've done, right? Because we're not trying to interview Simone Biles. Um, and so when, when Deadspin folded, it was because our, or not folded, when we all quit Deadspin, it was because the people in charge had decided that they wanted to dictate what those editorial values were. So you had a site of people who had come up, I mean, without me for decades together, believing some things uh, that were true majorly that they could say whatever they wanted and that no one got to dictate what the editorial beliefs of that site were. So when you have a a huge boss saying, no, you can't write this anymore, or you can't write anything that's not about sports anymore, it wasn't the fact that those bosses were trying to pigeonhole us into the sports arena as much as it was that they were trying to control the voice of the site. And so it was it was unmanageable. And so everyone quit. And now we have a new site where we do whatever we want. It's <laughs> better. Which is, and, it, and that's so, like, yeah. oh, go ahead. It seems like, well, I was just going to say that if listeners have not heard the saga of what happened to Gawker, uh, <laughs> definitely Google that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but when you were of, like, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Kelsey. I was going to say when you said to say the history, I was like, oh, Jesus, uh, let me go back to the beginning of like 2005 blog sphere. So, yes, Google Gawker. <laughs> yeah, Google Gawker. And it was Elon Musk, right? This Hulk Hogan. Back Hulk to Hogan. Peter Thiel. Yeah, yeah, yeah Peter, Peter Thiel. Thiel. Yeah, yeah. That, I couldn't remember which one of the psychos it was. It was the Christian one. <laughs> That's good. Relevant for this Oh, pod. God. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too to note that like Defector Media is like, I mean, it's it's a, I don't want to be too over the top with it, but I mean, I think it's easy to say it's a, like a, a huge like media success story. I mean, in the face of a pandemic and in the face of like a, a like a, the model of like trying to make money on, on and all these other things. I mean, essentially it's a blog, right? But it, but it, 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 it kind of transcends that. And it took all the best parts of Deadspin. Like Deadspin is, might have been the most intimidating place on the internet for me. Like if you ever just waded into those, <laughs> into the comments and had, and had even like the, uh, it was like, it was the place where like those people probably could have cured cancer. Um, but instead they were commenting on, on, in the Deadspin comics. It was vicious and wonderful at the same time uh, and a place where I just read. I never, and I engaged once and I got just killed. Um, my, my internet fear is coming up. Um, but this was, this was, this was, this is true. If you've never been a part of the Deadspin uh, comments, uh, they, they respect uh, takes uh, in a way that this podcast would, would appreciate. And there, it was no holds barred. I mean, just like, Ruthless um, and wonderful to watch at times, but but I, I think that that's important for the defector part of it. Is is you all were able to kind of transition into this thing, and now it's become, 
I don't know if it's a better version of Deadspin, but I think it's taking up that same space that Deadspin took up when immediately following that, when they were trying to like put all of the, uh, they're trying to keep Deadspin afloat with <laughs> these like just terrible articles and trying to like mimic the tone, but also not, you know, like do the, the shut up and dribble type of journalism that they were, I think, wanting you all to do. It's just like, it was obvious that like, oh, this was something special that we lost. And now it's kind of uh, resurrecting, for lack of a better term, uh, in the defector uh, in the defector world. So anyway, uh, I don't have much else to say except to just to keep a gl- uh, just loving on it. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking. But I, I just think it was one of those things of like, this is like an internet story that I, that I think is a good one. And there's not many good internet stories these days, it feels like. So. Thank you. Yeah, I think something we talk a lot about, right, is like workers' rights in general. And the thing that our bosses didn't understand is that what makes a website good or a podcast good or any piece of art created by workers good is the people who make it. It's not the brand itself, right? So you can put the deadspin headline on whatever you want. And if you fire or force everyone to get on the site, it won't be the same product at the end of the day. Um, and that's why, I mean, that's why the site that we launched instead of taking like VC money or taking some rich guy's money is collaboratively and cooperatively owned um, is because we wanted us to be the owners. We were like, we are the ones that do the work. We are the ones that make the blogs. Um, but you're right. I mean, the the media landscape has been completely decimated, right? It's easy for Defector to look like a huge success and to look like a great blog and to be a really fun place to read when we don't have a lot of competition, right? Which is like very helpful for us, um, but very sad as a reader for me. I'm like, I would love to read six other sites just like ours, right? I would lo- yeah. love to help like subscribe to them. Um, so I hope that that is coming, but thank you for saying that. We are often, uh, you know, stressed as hell that it's going too well. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I do have one beef with Deadspin, but um, <laughs> oh, before I get to it, I think it is uh, it is interesting to see like a similar website with a similar story, The Ringer, kind of just bleeding <laughs> talent recently. Like, and it's basically because uh, Bill Simmons will not recognize their union. Um, and yeah, so anyway, um, shout out Jason Concepcion and NBA Desktop. Uh, <laughs> I, my one beef with Deadspin, though, is that Clay Travis worked there in the past. Oh, and so yes. like, oh. I don't know if y'all should be held criminally responsible, but it's a it's a black mark for sure. I mean, I can't speak to that. I'm just on there doing my little dumb house blogs and shit. Zillowing so. out, for, for the listeners, Zillowing out is a series of blogs that Kelsey does where uh, you find incredible houses on Zillow mm-hmm. and then write about them. I went, I don't want to like put too too much weight on it, but it did save my sanity at certain points in the oh, pandemic. No. Like I was like, it is Zillow time. Like I, I'm going to get into it. It was very exciting. I mean, I worry for your for your mental health to be honest, but I also extremely worry for my mental health in writing it. So you know, we're all well, in the same the same boat of looking at houses to try to survive I'm now, and I can feel my brain healing. But it, maybe it's the five G. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so if you if all right, if y'all don't have any more questions about Defector, you want to talk about your book? Is it time? Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to. I want to summarize your book without like spoiling too much, and so I'm looking at the back, the jacket copy right now, and I think it's. Uh, I think the best description, without spoilers, might be that there are two sisters, Abigail and Caroline Nolan 
who are the daughters of a prominent megachurch pastor in North Texas. And uh, the book follows them finding out like a, a really damning revelation about their father and the emotional and like personal fallout from that. Is that fair? Did I miss That's anything? Basically, the exact elevator pitch I use. So, yes, great job. Great. And the net, sorry, as you said, the series, the Netflix series tagline is going to be Friday Night Lights goes to church. <laughs> we, we've done a whole podcast on Friday Night Lights before. I mean, as you should. Yes. And Someone needs te- to appreciate scripture. Oh, for right. sure. And the big Texas energy returns because I have to admit that I am like, I have no chill about this book because I am the exact target audience as like a former youth group girl from North Texas. Um, but I did, I, so I saw an Instagram post that you did that was a picture of like the structure that you had had on your window. It was like like a like an expo marker drawing of a house that yes. was like the structure of your novel. And I was really interested in that as to like what that was. <laughs> Yeah, um, I I mean I could show you, but this is a it's a it's a uh, not a visual medium, is it? Um, <laughs> so I work. I've, I'm like a tech a tactile learner, right? So I'm like really good with directions, but this is really bad for like trying to build a book because I can't remember like where things are in the story, and with with something as long as a novel, you're dealing with a series of revelations, some of which are happening in real time and some of which are revelations to the reader, right? So they happened in the past, quote unquote, of the novel, but they happen in the present for the reader. And I was just like having a really hard time keeping track of that and having a hard time keeping track of like how a character feels about someone, right? So the map that you saw, I think was from like later phases. And I think it was mapping, I cannot remember to save the life of me, but I think it was mapping um, the way the girls felt about each other. So I had, there were three lines on essentially like a regular graph chart that showed like one of which showed like Caroline's, how Caroline felt about Abigail, one that showed how Abigail felt about Caroline and one of which showed the way that they thought the other one felt. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. So that I could like keep track of where they were in every chapter. It does get like a little beautiful mindy because my handwriting is really bad. (laughs) So like my partner will come in here and be like, what is going on? Because I'm like, I have an expo marker in my mouth and like haven't slept in three days and just like drawing on the windows. And he's like, oh no, this is not good. But it does work when you're trying to structure a book to think about it as like a more physical object, right? Of like, where is the peak of your tension? And where is the fall, right? And how do you maintain that as you go um, structurally? And so, yeah, I I write on the windows. (laughs) Yeah, that's That's like uh, Mark Zuckerberg when he started Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, except I believe billionaires are immoral. Oh, there it is. All right. Well, I was I was going to go with. Uh, I think it was. uh... I was just going to say before we got into like the craft stuff of writing, could you just tell us a little bit about like how how like where this book came from, like. Is it from your life experience? We were just talking about how you work for this like niche sports blog. And now we're talking about your book about a evangelical megachurch. Yeah, absolutely. So I I grew up in North Texas, like CJ. Um, and I my dad was a youth pastor. So he's he was not a pastor of like a Luke Nolan capacity, but he was like the cool youth pastor, right? Like tattoos long. They're all that former guy. cool youth um, pastors. Uh, speak for yourself, podcast. still am current yes. youth, cool youth we pastor. They're also close to our heart. We appreciate them so much. Um, And I love my dad. He's not like people in Nolan, thank God. Um, And when I started working, 
I didn't like realize what I was doing. I was just kind of working. I was trying to work through my own like emotional process, right? And so I wouldn't where this book started was in me trying to just like actively remember what it was like to be so immersed in this evangelical culture, right? Because my brain was kind of repressing a lot, a lot of those mil- memories from myself. And so I was trying to kind of remember like what it was like how growing up there felt, how it affected me. Um, And as I kept working, I realized that I was working with like things that didn't happen to me. I was starting to ask these questions about like, okay, what is, how does the church protect people in power? And how does that affect the people who don't have power in the church? Um, And dealing with kind of watching some of my friends who left evangelicalism for more uh, accepting faiths, and seeing them pursue their own faith in a different way led me to kind of question these things. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it evolved from there. I would say the first draft of this book, which is uh, extremely bad and extremely different, is much more true to my life than this is. There's only like one scene in this book, which is where like the sisters do shots. It's like an actual verbatim scene that I stole from my life with my sister. Everything else is fake. So it, but what's interesting to me about it is that the further I got from the stories I was telling about myself, the truer the book became, right? So the, I was, instead of trying to protect the people around me and protect the church I grew up in and protect my family and my sister, I could kind of lay bare, like here are these fake people and here are the actual truths about them in a more concrete way. And so that's kind of, I would say the heart of the book is absolutely true, right? Every emotion in the book I have felt, but none of the scenes are real. <laughs> hmm. That's... So interesting to hear. Well, Brian and I, so Brian and I both uh, went to the same MFA program. So, and I feel like <laughs> I've had this discussion of like, how, how much is true? Like what's truth and what's autobiography so many times that I'm like, I've got the arguments <laughs> going in my head. So let's just skip all of that. <laughs> but you, you get that you, you make this particular setting of like North Texas evangelical churches like so alive in your book. But I, I mean, as I said, I have no chill about it because I, <laughs> I grew up in it. Um, and I was looking through the book. It takes place in like four places, uh, the ranch and the megachurch mostly. And then there are several scenes in grocery stores um, and in Abigail and Caroline's childhood house. And then like, I guess there's a bunch of scenes in cars, which is also very true to the suburban experience. I guess I found that really interesting. I thought it was really true to uh, my experience of growing up in the suburbs that you're like either at home or at church. And it made it seem like such a tight, claustrophobic little world. Did you did you have thoughts of like trying to expand that world past like the sisters or trying to make this novel like more of a, a bigger, not not bigger and like this novel is small, but, yeah. but like bigger and like expanding worldview. Yeah, I think, you know, the like tagline and the way that we sell the book is right, this like scandal of this major evangelical pastor and the fallout of that, right? But in reality, this is a book about two sisters and their relationship with each other, right? Like it's, that is the core and the heart of the book. And that's what I wanted to work on, right? I wanted to work on kind of the, the depth and the intimacy of that relationship. Um, And so there were times like I have a bunch of like scrapped scenes from like at the church or in like more common spaces in the community that I ended up scrapping, not because they didn't work, but because when you try to do too much, you can't go as deeply, right? So I wanted to kind of just 
focus in on these two girls and the way that this would affect them. And I didn't want to add too much around them to distract from that. So while this setting is small um, and the world is really small, that's all intentional, right? I wanted it to be as small as possible. And something I think a lot about is like, I think there are writers who are great at having like a whole group of friends, right? It's like there are eight people in this book and they're all very vibrantly built. And like, I just can't do that because I am like, I want to go absolutely a mile deep on everything. And when you do that, you end up with an 800 page book and no one wants to read that. So I went with two and got it to 300, right? Yeah, I. it's interesting because I... I don't know that I would have described it as like small in for, for part of setting, but in that might just be because I'm projecting my own writing career onto it, where it's like I this is I, I do the same thing. Like I, I like to be very intensive about like um, the relationships between two kids in a book, as opposed to the fact that the book might be like about the death penalty. And it's like that's not what the book's about. That just happens yeah. in the book. Uh, one of the things, though, as somebody who did not grow up in North Texas and did not growing up in this kind of church environment, was it. It always felt like, I don't want this to turn into like a huge craft talk, but like there's that thing called the, the uninventable detail, right? That thing that like, when I read it, I know that it's true, even though I have never experienced it before. And that was what really kind of uh, set a lot of the story apart for me is there are moments where it's just like, oh, I, I see this. Like, I, I can imagine this and I know this is a true thing. Um, you know, true, not necessarily like you said that it happened to you, but this moment where it's like, I've never been a part of that, but I know that person. And the example, I'm going to be, I'm going to be weird and read from it, but it's like the, uh, the, there's a part towards the end of the book where it's like the worship pastor, a man in his mid thirties with tattooed forearms showing beneath his rolled up, but rolled button up a brimmed hat perched high upon his head. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, I know that guy. Uh, <laughs> and, and I thought that like, there was a combination of like, that's the type of thing that I think is a, People outside the church know that guy. They've seen that guy on TikTok or wherever it is. But it's also like, if you've been in the church, you also know that guy. And so it, it, it's just a nice, I guess, uh, mashup of being able to be like, I've never been a part of this uh, community, but I feel like I am because of the way that you uh, built it from the sisters up. So, uh, so it's weird because I, I think it is small, but like to me, the books that are kind of huge end up being like uh, very... Uh, they don't have as much depth. And the stuff that actually really kind of affected me was the the things between Caroline and, and, and Abigail, as opposed to, uh, you know, the scandal side of it. So, yeah. It, it, so it's, it's interesting to think, I would have never thought about that, but I, I do agree, CJ, that you're, that it is small, but it's just one of those things of, it was so well done, you don't see it, I guess, until I guess it gets said in that way. It's interesting you bring up like the forum tattooed um, worship pastor, because I... I think in the early drafts of this book, I skimmed over a lot of stuff like that because it was my lived experience. And you forget to describe things when they're so common to you, right? Like you you and I know what Luke Nolan looks like without ever with me, without me ever describing him. You know that he's tall. You know he has good hair. You know he's like always sweaty, right? Like you know all of these <laughs> things about him. Just because that's every single megachurch pastor, right? It's a stereotype. Um, but I think one of the things I realized as I went along in the process with my editor, who is not from the South and did not grow up evangelical, is she didn't know those things, right? She was like, I don't know what these places look like. I don't know what kind of decoration there would be, right? So something to me like the candles that have the little switch on the bottom of them that you set up around the outside of the stage... <laughs> which is like very iconic of an evangelical church, she had never heard of, 
right? And when you add those details, it feels bigger, even though it's like these are the tiny, tiny little things, right? They're the flyer you're handed on the way in. They're the flat brimmed hat, right? Like there are all of these things that are going to be dated in 25 years, but make it a real space. As a uh, pastor in his early 30s that just got a forearm tattoo, <laughs> I felt really attacked by that part and like wanted to go to a laser removal place. <laughs> I mean, I personally have a lot of forearm tattoos. So who am I to judge? Also, I love a lot of pastors with forearm tattoos. It's something I... I think that was really hard for me in writing this honestly was that I wanted to write something that was true about the evangelical church. And I wanted to be, I mean, almost brutally honest in that truth, right? To say like, here are the things that are bad. Here are the ways it can affect you. And at the same time, I wanted to show that, you know, this can be a place that's very loving and very important and very supportive, right? And both of those things can be true. Right. So it's like I can make fun of this guy with his forearm tattoos, meanwhile, knowing that like one of the most influential men in my life has forearm tattoos and wore a flat for that. Right. Like that's kind of the dichotomy of both the book and like I think anyone who grows up in this culture. Yeah. I and I think that you avoid the common mistake of people who people who write about religion, I feel like either they're always trying to dunk on it and, and it's either comes from a very informed, like traumatic place or it comes from an uninformed, but still traumatic place. And, and I thought what I really, one of the things I really loved is, and we are guilty on this podcast of dunking on some evangelicals from time to time uh, when they make mistakes. But I thought that like what was really powerful about this is that you do get to see how it affects people that still love, you know, that, that still love their dad, uh, you know, or that are still yeah. connected to these people. And, I don't know. I think that that's, it's just, there's a lot of care in, in writing a book. And it's, I think it's a lot harder to write that book as opposed to write the book where it's just like, uh, you know, like a kid losing their faith because X happens. It, 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 there's just much more complicated. And I think it mimics the real life, like uh, experience of being religious uh, in a way that most novels just don't, they don't take the time to do that because they're just not concerned with it. But it's that was one of the things that really stood out to me. Uh, as a person, I'm always trying to find this stuff in fiction. And so I, I will over-relate to it very quickly. But it is one of those things where most people just don't do it well. Uh, and it's because I don't think that they get down to that like interpersonal level of like, yeah, this person did a horrible thing, but those ties aren't always just easily just immediately cut. And so I thought that that kind of like turning this into a family story as opposed to like a religious scandal story, again, was just, it, it's just a masterful move that's, I don't, don't think most authors are going to take that because that's the harder route, I, I guess, uh, for most people. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't think this is a spoiler, but like that's part of why the sisters are so different, right? Like they go through a traumatic event together and their responses to it are almost polar opposites, right? They're both angry. They're both having a hard time, but one of them leans into her faith and one of them leans away from it, right? And both of those experiences are valid. Both of them are experiences I've seen or had. And that I wanted to be true to that, I guess. So thank you. That's a really nice compliment. Kelsey, I wondered when you were um, writing the book or even pitching it to publishers, you know, it, it's, it struck me as I was reading like the first hundred pages or so, I guess maybe before the girls kind of go out to the ranch that like how much I hated everyone I was reading about. <laughs> and like um, this, you know, evangelical culture, especially since Trump is basically like the least popular sort of subculture of whiteness in America right now. So like when people read this, like when you took it to the publishers, was that ever brought up? Or like, how do you intend 
the reader to react to some of these things? Because it, it seems like... I don't know. It seems like a big hurdle maybe initially for people to get over. Like, when, when Are they supposed to be hate reading about these people? Or do you want them to be learning something like deeper empathy for them? Like, I just, I'm curious about how you, what your thoughts are on that. So just to be clear, your question is, um, how do I expect readers to engage with a community that has been extremely hateful and that has been publicized recently? Is that your that's Yeah, your I guess that, I guess, you know, it just seems like if someone was like, oh, I really hate evangelicals. So like, like it might keep them from ever cracking the book, which I guess is yeah. always a problem with any novel. But I just wondered what your thoughts were on that particular choice or aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a laundry list of problems with evangelicalism. I have a laundry list of problems with the political stances that they've taken in the past, I don't know, a hundred years. So I completely understand where those people are coming from. And I've already had a few people be like, can I read this book if I like had an evangelical upbringing and absolutely hated it. And I'm like, yes, I mean, warning, like flashing yellow lights, but I guess so. I guess, I mean, people hate things all the time. I can't, I'm waiting for someone to like come to me and be like, I really fucking hated this. Like I'm ready for it. It hasn't happened yet, but it will, it will happen. Um, Just go to Goodreads. I've been there. Don't do it. Stay away. Stay away. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny though. I think, you know, I did, there is a Goodreads review of now that I like cherish and hold very close to my heart where this, this person wrote, um, she, she was like, you know, I love this book. I love the plot. I love the characters. I thought it was really fast paced, but it may, you know, the evangelical church seems like it really has some problems and it can be very hurtful to people. And I didn't like that two stars. And I was like, <laughs> you fell face first into the point. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I felt great. I printed it out. I was like, this is exactly what I'm trying to do. <laughs> like, yes, I want you to come and I want you to get invested. And I want you to say like, I care about these two girls, despite what their dad did and despite what their dad believes and maybe even preaches from the pulpit. And I want goodness for them. And also, this is not a great space for them to be in and there is harm there, right? So, I mean, I don't know, people who truly hate evangelicals, I don't think they should read the book. But if you're (laughs) interested in them at all, I hope that this gives like a more nuanced perspective than just of the culture, at least, than, you know, reporters flying in and interviewing people in parking lots about their views on homosexuality or whatever. Well, and that's, right. I, I think that's really important too. My, my best ever Goodreads review was for my first, first book, which also dealt with like religious trauma. And it was one star, which this was a romance. And I was like, it's about a brother and sister. <laughs> like, so I don't know what you're trying to say there, but <laughs> oh I, I yeah, um, wish this was a romance. So I, I have that one printed out because I was just like, this is, that was the moment where I was like, Goodreads is pointless. I am not looking at that. I hope you all have fun reviewing books, but I am not putting my, uh, my, what do you call it? Uh, sense of self <laughs> in any of these reviews anymore. Um, But I I think that, you know, when you say like, maybe evangelicals shouldn't, like if they hate it, shouldn't read it. Like again, there's a sense of empathy that comes with like fiction. Like that's one of the things that like, this is where I'm going to have no chill, CJ. But there is like this sense of like empathy that like good fiction brings you empathy for people that you might not have empathy for otherwise. And I think that that's 
the, the hard part is with that is that when it's somebody that you don't want to have empathy for, like I don't necessarily want to have empathy for Luke Nolan, right? But it's like you, you have it, it just it forces you into it. It's like it's like you see the the blinking light all the way down the road, and you're just hurtling us towards it. Um, and so for me, that like that's one of those things that would be the pitch for somebody who hates the evangelical church is it it might give you a reason to pause before you. I don't know. I, I think there are a lot of reasons to hate the to have problems with the evangelical church. But I think this is a good example of that. Maybe we shouldn't paint with like a broad stroke all the time in that way. So that's one of the things that a fiction, like a novel can do that, that a nonfiction book necessarily doesn't do as well, I think so. Well, I just want to be clear that my point wasn't like, <laughs> you know, I guess the point I was trying to make is like, you know, because this culture is so sort of reviled publicly right now, you know, was Kelsey worried about the kind of hurdle okay. that might be to people even just opening the book? I absolutely do think that what you talk about, Brian, does happen. Yeah. Even though when it comes to Luke, Luke Nolan, the pastor, one of the things I appreciated about the book, Kelsey, is that you never like... I mean, he's like almost like the shark in Jaws. He's like hardly in it. And mm -hmm. yet he's this big presence. But you never like give us the scene where he's just preaching and we're listening to him. It's always sort of filtered through through Caroline's perspective or someone else's, which I think kind of, you know, puts him in a, a remove that I was happy to sort of let be there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that, that that was just it. Like, you know, when this is such, a, a, you know, a subculture that people just don't like so much, were you, you know, were you worried that it would put people, keep people from reading the book? Yeah. I think there's also a question there, right? That we're not, we're like circling around of like, who do you write for, right? Like, who is this book for? And honestly, like, this isn't a book for people, like, not that they can't enjoy it, but people who like grew up in the Northeast and went to Yale and have always been like voted Democrats and have like a history of civil rights action. This is not the, a book for them. They have a lot of culture already that they can consume. We didn't. There are multiple. So your, your book starts, like the epigraph is from Genesis 19.8. It's the story of Lot's daughter's and Lot's daughters are kind of a, a lasting, or a, a metaphor that's threaded through the whole book. And I read passages where I was like, ah, oh, yeah, like that's a former Bible study girl right there. And um, so I was interested in how you decided. Um, I think there's some really good exegesis in the book about biblical passages. And I was wondering how you decided like how much to include. Like a lot of that is kind of insider baseball, especially if you're talking about like the story of Lot's daughters and Lot's wife. I think it was important to the plot and to the characterization, but it's also, uh, you have to decide like, even within, even within a kind of narrow audience, how much of like, are, are you going to talk about the Bible? How much are you going to talk about the Bible in this book? So what was that process for you? I mean, I, as someone who is not as faithful as I once was, was love the Bible. I think it's uh, like just incredible text. I think there's a ton of cool shit in there and I like reading it, right? Like I've always found that interesting. And I think, you know, I make a joke a lot about like, there are a lot of pipelines in youth groups on accident, right? Like there's like a young, very religious, very serious youth group kid to queer child pipeline. There's a like mm -hmm. very serious Bible study reader to like writer and English teacher pipeline. Right. And I think for me, I'm in like both those pipelines just hurtling straight at the sun. Right. So I think I, I wanted to write about the Bible in this book because the Bible is important to these girls, right? Like they are in a faith where they care and where it is like a pivotal part of Luke Nolan's sermons. It's a pivotal part of Abigail's faith. And so it needs to be there, right? 
in terms of like how much do you use, there's stuff that you picked up on that people who did not grow up in the church and haven't read their Bible like every day for a million years are not going to pick up on. Right. That like it doesn't they it won't like catch them because they don't have all of the references. Right. And they don't need to. But like so you will read a lot more of the Bible in this book than a lot of people will, I think, which is kind of interesting at this point for me because I did not intend to do that. It's just an accident. But in like actual passages, I wanted them to actively discuss the Bible because that was true to my upbringing. Right. Like when I was in high school when my faith was like the deepest and craziest it's ever been. I was constantly talking about the Bible, right? And so to pull that text out, to just delete a sacred text from their faith, it seems not only unjust, but untrue, right? Like it's not the way that they would live. Does that answer your question? (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. And can I weigh in? I think too that one of the things that's good about this, and even if it's not your intention, is that when a kid or a um, you know if a teenager picks this book up or if an adult picks this book up and has that sort of they're in that deconstruction phase or maybe they have, they're beginning to kind of get, catch a glimpse of it like books like this also give people who have lived in a uh, theology of like certainty that's all encompassing a peak of like well maybe that might not be the only way and so I think that that also, CJ, when you bring up the, I, I was also struck by that too, that when you bring that people up, the people who will catch that stuff and it's going to like shake their foundations a little bit, that there's something really important about that. Now, whether that's your your intention or not, you know, I, I think it comes through just based on who you are now and kind of how you grew up. But I think that there's something really important. And this is again, going back to people who write about religion well and those who don't, is the people that can kind of reframe it and to say, this is still important to me and I want to care about this part of it, but I'm not going to deal with all that other shit anymore. So I'm going to frame it in this way. And I just think that when that's kind of the hidden surprise for a book like this is that hopefully somebody sees God Spare, uh, uh, God Spare the Girls, the cover and be like, oh, a novel about Jesus. And they pick it up and then they get to, they, they have this moment of like liberation, hopefully. Like that's, yeah, right. Like that's the, that's kind of what I always hope for in books like this. And, and I think, so I think like the kind of unpacking of like exegesis of scripture is really important for that. Regardless if you, you know, mean to do it or not, uh, that's something I'm always going to latch onto because it just gives people a safe place to kind of question and think through things that maybe they don't have anywhere else. And so they can find it in this book. So that, that's great. I did also intentionally choose like the story of Lot. I mean, I've always found fascinating. Like the Old Testament in general is just like full of great stories. But part of the reason I chose it is it was one that I knew and that I know like people don't think about a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like they read that passage and like maybe your pastor kind of like zooms through it and like doesn't really like take a real hard look at it. And I wanted to kind of be like, okay, but this is in there, right? So what do you do with that, right? And that's always a huge question for Christians about like, okay, it says this in the book. So what do you do with that? And how do you extrapolate it? And I wanted to kind of say, I mean, there's a whole scene in the book where they're like talking about essentially the theology of this passage and like ways in which you could read it. And I wanted that in there because I wanted there to be this kind of narrative of like, you come to these stories with every single sermon you've ever heard on them already, right? Like you can never reface these like completely blind. And so the ability to take two steps back and say like, okay, what does this mean? Are these things that I was already told true? Is reading it in this way, the right way to read it or even a way to read it? I think are really hard questions to tackle and ones that 
are especially hard if you haven't done it a lot. And so I wanted to kind of give an example of that to also, I mean, like I said, I would have loved to have this book as a teen to kind of give me that space to be like, oh, it's okay, right? To like read this in a different way. Like I'm not going to be smote from above. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, I will say that reading that passage was actually a kind of revelatory for me because I I honestly forget about Lost Daughters a lot. but they do some fucked up stuff, which is crazy. But um, but also that is a that particular passage is a clobber verse that's used against queer Christians all the time, right? So I've spent a lot of my time in my life like thinking about that verse, but in a completely different context. And so when I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, lots of daughters are like getting the short end of the stick here. And it's not even something that I I've spent so much time talking about this fucking passage from the Bible when it's like, there's an, an entire other book, you know, there's a whole, the whole rest of the Bible we could talk about. And I have to talk about Lot again, but I forget about his daughters at all. Um, which is sort of the point that you make. Anyway, I didn't have a question. I was just telling you about how I reacted. <laughs> I think the people who, the person who left that um, Goodreads review on Brian's first novel, hoping <laughs> it was a romance, they uh, are going to get what they want at the end of the... <laughs> Lot's daughter story, oh, no. <laughs> which the book does not go into. Oh man! Yeah, when I saw that like metaphor starting to kind of weave through the whole thing, I, I was like, oh my god! I hope we don't get like past, past this <laughs> oh, into, no. the, into the part where you know they continue the family line. <laughs> <laughs> you know this. So this theme of of sexuality and like what is sort of like pure sex, what is illicit sex runs throughout the entire book, starting with that like truly, truly insane and totally believable like uh, discussion of Abigail and and Luke like pledging, like taking the purity pledge together on stage. Did you base that on something or did you just come up with that? That's real. Isaac, did you not know that's real? I mean, I figured it was real, but I didn't know like if those were the words they used or if Kelsey was like inventing that? I think the words have been changed. I'm pretty sure they have because I'm pretty sure I made them up, but that does happen. So in most purity pledge programs still, you are pledging both like to quote unquote to the Lord of your virginity, but you are also making a pledge with your parents Mm -hmm. in order to like be respectful of them. In retrospect, I'm not really sure how this is supposed to work, but there is a parental part of the pledge of like, I will help quote unquote, help my child like remain sexually pure, which is like a weird, gross area to think about. Well, I think the, you know, sort of the interplay with Caroline's, you know, Caroline losing her virginity and then seeing like her taking that step as like her only lens to sort of interpret it is like the connection to her father having an affair. Um, and then the like sort of Abigail's role and all of that. I mean, I, to me, it was one of the most, I think, honest parts of the book is as far as like what people who are coming into this are going to be bringing with it if they are from that evangelical background is that concern over like what a, like what stuff is allowed you know but i think that um sorry coming to my point here with this <laughs> which i may have just lost i was going to ask a question just, oh i mean i think just you know to me part of the the like theme that runs through it that's so true to evangelicalism is how Luke Nolan like makes his name by propping up purity culture in in this world, kind of creating it, only for that to not matter at all when it turns out that 
you know, he's had this affair and people just going straight back to like, oh, who cares? Like we we need to serve the kingdom and and Luke is a part of that. So yeah, I just I that was one of my sort of favorite themes in the book and the way you navigated it. Right. It's like who has to face the consequence, right? Like that's always the question in the evangelical church of like you're saying there are these rules and you're saying there are consequences for breaking the rules, but it's very unclear who will actually face the consequences and which rules are the ones that have dire ones, right? Like it's even like when you're talking about it, right? Like the book depicts chapter two of her having sex as her losing her virginity, right? But like we know from the book that she's like fooled around before that, right? So you could even make the case that like maybe she already has, right? Depending on what your definition of sex is. So you have this kind of very narrow field, right? And so for her, for a lot of girls, I think growing up in the church and a lot of children growing up in the church in general, you have kind of a one version of sex And that is the only one that's okay. And anything else outside of that is like a giant question mark and like gray and black. And so you're like very uncertain what you can do and what you can't do. And so for her, yeah, like she did something she wasn't allowed to do, had sex outside of marriage. So what's the difference, right? And this is a comment in what's the difference in her father having an affair, right? And that is the way I was taught sin, right? What's the difference in gossiping and like murdering your neighbor, right? Of this kind of conflation of harm, which isn't true in reality, but is certainly true in the church, right? That she would see it as like any decision that is against the Bible is the exact same. I was just going to say that, but the the interesting thing about that is that the thing that is sort of has to remain impervious to harm at all times, like is the actual church. Right. So like Luke's affair can't really harm the church. It can just be a test, you know, but Caroline losing her virginity, like, you know, at the same time, we get all this background of other people, mostly women who've sort of been ushered out after like missteps or whatever else. But the, you know, because they, they need to be removed because they could harm the church, but Luke cannot, he can just, you know, be a test for them. And yes, okay, I agree with all of that. I don't know that I have anything more to say, but lest anyone listening to this think that like, oh, it's theology heavy or it's, oh, it's like, there's just, it's it's a slow book. This is, I read it in one afternoon. It's one of the most propulsive books I've read in a long time. And there was like, Caroline sends a risky text about halfway through the book. And at that point I sat up straight in my bed and I said, <laughs> oh my God, out loud. And I was like, I'm not sleeping until I finish this. So if you are listening, it's, you're, you're going to enjoy some aspect of this book. <laughs> it felt like, I mean, it, it honestly felt like getting good church gossip, which is the best kind of gossip. <laughs> yeah, there's one line that was like so menacing to me that I thought the story was going to head somewhere like completely different. But it's like the line, he came so quietly to ruin everything. I thought someone was about to get murdered. Like <laughs> that's how like in... Like locked in I was at that point. But that's the point, right? Is that yeah. to them, he might as well have murdered someone. Like mm, they right. they really can't see the difference. They're like, these are the same thing, right? Any kind of breakdown of what you were supposed to be is the same to me. But thank you for saying it's fast. I mean, that was that was something that I worked really hard on was to make it kind of to make it smart and to make it make you think, but to also make it something that you did not want to put down. There's a lot of gossip in this book. It's really juicy. And I mean, it's something 
I made a decision pretty early on to go like very tight third person for the exact reason of what you're saying about with the text, which is like, there are things that these characters do that you, the reader, know are mistakes and they have no idea. They're just like, this is what I'm doing. It's great. And the book doesn't lay that out for you. You're free to kind of think that on your own and panic, which is the point. So I'm glad it worked. Well, so speaking of conflation of sin, uh, are we ready for a fight corner? <laughs> uh, sorry, that's just else one we the, want to get into. That was the best uh, segue ever. <laughs> Thank you. Now on to baseball. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so Kelsey works for Defector, and I know that you're a baseball fan, and because the fight corner has become just a place for my personal vendettas. <laughs> Today, I thought I would welcome Rob Manfred, Commissioner of Major League Baseball, to the fight corner. I think I could take him. He's very old. <laughs> I think you could take him too. He's pretty old. He's got terrible ideas. <laughs> and I mean, apparently despises the sport of baseball. Yeah. So like, it's not like he's out there like in the in the cages getting strong. Oh, hold, hold on a second. Wait a minute. But I thought, what about the extra innings rule, CJ? Isn't that, weren't all baseball fans clamoring for a second, for an extra innings rule that has no reason or point for any any point of the game? I mean, that's got to be a mark in his in his uh, in the, in his corner, right? I mean, something good. Here's here's my beef. Here's my main beef with Rob Manfred. He sucks. Um, <laughs> we won't even get into Bud Selig, who I hate even more, who was the previous commissioner. But I mean, the Rob Manfred of it all. The thing is, he is apparently only in in the sport for the money, which makes no sense. Like baseball is making money hand over fist. They always have because that's how professional sports work. But he is constantly wishing that we could speed up the pace of play in baseball, which I will, I'll give him that it's a real problem. Like baseball games are like four hours long now. And when people are like, it's boring, I don't want to watch the sport. I'm like, that's fair. I love it, but that's fair. But his solutions to like speed up the pace of play are like, let's add a runner on second and extra innings or like, let's add a pitch clock when the real answer would be like, I don't know, maybe we don't have a commercial break every half inning where we have to like sit around and wait for commercials to end. <laughs> or get rid of the shift. <laughs> There's my hot take for the day. Well, you... Uh, yeah, I mean, I... Sorry, but... I would love to get rid of the shift yes. pers- personally, but what I would love more is for the emphasis for them to deaden the ball. This is like, I'll go to my grave begging for them to dead the ball because part of the problem right now, in my opinion, is you have people who are only trying to hit home runs and so you, the game is really strikeout yes. heavy. And while that is cool, if you are someone like me who like loves a pitcher's duel and likes to watch a catcher frame a pitch, if you are a regular person who wants to drink beer in the sun for three hours, it's boring as hell. You can't see the strike box. Like make them put the ball in play. And it's like that would actually, all the things he could do to actually increase the pace of play, like making them put the ball in play or, you know, getting rid of video review, he refuses to do. So it's like, it's just, it's just I mean, you mentioning deadening the balls leads to part two, which is that he is just actively lying to baseball fans. Like he was like, no, we definitely didn't juice the balls last season. But then, so my brother is a huge stat head. And so there's like, he's done all these stats <laughs> to, to, to prove this. Um, but <laughs> I mean, like it's proven that like, the the ball like the rate of home runs went way up last season and it's going way back down this season but no they definitely didn't juice the balls <laughs> even though they control the means of production mm-hmm. for baseballs 
And it's and like, they, why, what's the point of lying to the fans? Like, just tell us that you juiced the balls, Rob. But also they like deadened them in the playoffs last year because mm-hmm. they like suddenly, you know, hits that would have been home runs literally two weeks ago were no longer home runs. And it led to one of the most like the dumbest outrage cycles in all of professional sports. Ronald Acuna thinking he had hit a home run, not running it out, and people like yelling at him, which led Brian Snicker to literally make the comment after the game, we're not giving up on him. Yeah, he's a fucking MVP. Of course you're not giving up on him, Brian. He just signed a $150 million contract. Fuck you. I'm sorry. But I used to be a huge Braves fan. But the fucking like unspoken rules of the game bullshit and Manfred's decision not to take the title away from the Astros like killed baseball for me. That's my beef with Rob Manfred. When he was like, "Well, what do you want me to do? Take the title away?" Yes, yes, yes. Rob. I can do it. Tell me what you do. <laughs> there it is. I'm hard. You guys are too nice. You're like take the title away. I'm like relegate them to AAA. Bring <laughs> someone else up. Like let's really go. Like bring the bring the Wichita Wingnuts up. Give Kansas two. Teams. Yes. Like who cares? <laughs> Give Alaska a team. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Manfred has basically destroyed minor league baseball because yep. he doesn't want to fucking pay minor leaguers. So that's this another was part, part three of my beef. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I Great part segue. Three, part three of my beef is that fuck your entire attitude towards the minor leagues, Rob Manfred. First of all, you pay them a subliving wage. These people are professional athletes, but somehow they don't count until they get to the major leagues, which like, I don't know, 90% of them won't do. And so they're not getting paid a living wage. They have to um, like work extra jobs on top of being a professional baseball player, which is incredibly hard work. Like most people cannot do that. And he recently streamlined the minor leagues. So got rid of a lot of historical leagues like the Pacific Coast League, the Texas League, into this like under this like one baseball idea. It's, it's also really frustrating for me. I mean, I grew up in the DFW Metroplex, so I grew up a Rangers fan. But it's frustrating for me because a lot of states in the United States don't have professional sports at all, yes. right? So states like Alabama, Tennessee. Mississippi, Tennessee don't have professional baseball. And so it's like you had minor league stadiums there that if you're saying you want people to like love the sport, how are they supposed to fucking see it? You have all of these games on like regional networks and then you shut down their little minor league team. It's just, it's so offensive. I'm like, let people go for $12 to watch some guys like try to learn to throw a slider. That's fun. Let them try. <laughs> well, and here in, we have, we have the twins obviously here. Also, mm-hmm. I want to say a, uh, Put a word for not having re- uh, re- regulation because the White Sox being as they are, uh, I just don't want that <laughs> happening. So it's okay for like in terms of cheating, but let's not get like FIFA about it and start taking for bad play. Uh, anyway, but like here in here in Minnesota, one of the things that's wonderful about the Twin Cities is we do have the Twins, but we also have the Saints, which is an independent baseball team. And so they don't really play in a like a, they're not a minor league team, you know, affiliated with anybody. And it's, and it's like partially owned by Bill Murray. So like every once in a while he'll walk up and he'll be at the, like taking tickets at the count. It's weird. But anyway, but it's like, that's one of the things that I appreciate about having something like that is that's what like minor league baseball for me used to be when I used to go see the Hickory Crawdads in North Carolina is it was this kind of like totally unique experience. And now when you go, it's exactly what you say. It's kind of just this thing where it's like, well, I mean, there's no way to invest in it anymore. Anyway, I, I, have, a, I have a question about, about uh, major league commissioners, but I don't want to get to it until till the end, so... Okay, well, I, I have a fourth. It. What? I have a fourth and final point. Go ahead. 
<laughs> my fourth and final point in the fight corner against Rob Manfred is that he is also like an active danger to baseball fans. Kelsey herself has written an extremely good article about people who get hit by foul balls and the aftermath of like what that can do to people. And it is, I mean, it's harrowing. I mean, a girl has died because she got hit by a pitch or she got hit by a foul ball at a professional baseball game. And the like several leagues, the entire Korean league, the entire Japanese league, they have just extended the, the nets so that people don't get hit by balls and you don't have to worry about that. And if you're sitting in seats without netting, they provide helmets for you in Japan. And Rob Manfred simply like won't mandate the league to extend their netting. And it, I mean, it's like, it's an actual danger. Like these hitters are hitting incredibly hard because they're professional baseball players. I went to a minor league baseball game in Durham uh, when I was in seminary and we were sitting behind the plate, uh, just up the third baseline. And there was a foul ball that hit a little girl in the face, like two seats over for me. It's one of the most like horrific experiences of my life. It was just absolutely terrible. And like, I like saw the ball and it was just like nothing anybody could do about it because it happened so fast, but it hit her right in the face. I mean, it was terrible. Anyway. I mean, this is a great reason, I think, to fight Rob Manfred in general, because this is exactly the problem, is he his reasoning for not doing this is he says, like, well, the players want to interact with the fans, and the fans want to interact with the players. And it's this kind of, like, old glory days mentality yes. of, like, what baseball used to be. And it's like, okay, what baseball used to, do, used to be is a bunch of guys who weren't squatting 500 pounds, like, throwing bats around. Like, this, you can't do this anymore. It's not safe. And after reporting that piece, I, like, I actively will not sit not behind the net. Like, it freaked me out so badly that I was like, I'm never... I will only sit in the outfield or like fully behind the net because like you just can't react fast enough. And that's what the, everyone's argument is like, we'll just stop the ball. It's like <laughs> the pitcher half the time can't stop the ball when it comes at him at yeah. that speed. How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, pitchers get hit all the time. There was that like really harrowing time when a kid, I mean, a pitcher literally got hit in the head with the ball because A-Rod hit it back at him. <laughs> Okay, Rod. Just <laughs> he, he's not welcome to the fight corner because he could beat me up. <laughs> well, I mean, my question for this was: is like, is he worse? Is he the worst commissioner of any major sport? I mean, because Roger Goodell, still is, Goodell, I know Goodell, still is, Goodell. Okay, Goodell. I, just, I just wanted to get a, get a, get a temperature check on that because I, I feel like Goodell is is still like maybe in a league of his own. Uh, <laughs> I was I was at the gym last week and there was like an update on the on the Sports Center like news bar. There was like Roger. Goodell fully vaxxed will be able to hug at the draft. And I was just like, we're living in hell. We're living in hell. <laughs> anyway, oh, so that thus ends my fight corner. Rob Manfred, you were cordially invited to fly to DFW and meet me in the Denton Jillies parking lot. Thank you. You have enough I'm, money. You can do you it. You know, I'm still waiting for Ted Cruz to meet me in the octagon, but if he ever does, I would love to join you for this fight with Roger Goodell or and Rob Manfred, really. Let's fight them all. It's fine. Uh, Ted Cruz has previous invitee to the fight corner, Ted Cruz. So this guy's never showing up. He's coward. <laughs> well, true. All of my baseball takes have been revealed. Elsie, what would you like to plug on the pod for our listeners? I mean, please buy my book. I worked very hard on it. Um, it comes out June 22nd. It's called God Spare the Girls. But if you type in God Save the Girls, it'll also come up. So both of those titles are fine. 
Um, yeah, I guess that's it. I don't have any like events or anything because of COVID, but please buy it. I would love to write another book. And if you do buy it, I probably can. So uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, thanks so for much coming for coming on. on.